Episode 280, COVID-19. Will currently in-use technology advancements wind up disrupting traditional models of healthcare delivery and reimbursement? I get a provider and a payer's perspective. On today's show, I speak with Yoheni Salad, MD, and Rahul Dubey. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I am talking with Yoheni Salad, MD. Dr. Salad is one of the top minds in data and data exchange. He's medical director of digital health and telemedicine at Yale New Haven Health. And he has a mission to lead digital transformation toward accessible and affordable high quality care that's enabled by technology. Dr. Salad also does a lot of work with Node, the network of digital evidence. In the conversation we're about to have, Dr. Salad represents the provider point of view. The show today also features the one and only Rahul Dubey, hero to peaceable protesters. You can search for Rahul Dubey protesters to see what I mean. And also, he is the founder of Personal Health Innovations. Uh, Rahul is the former chief innovation officer over at AHIP, that is America's health insurance plan. In this conversation, Rahul represents the payer point of view. Here's what we're talking about, and I'm going to keep this brief. It has been postulated that technology will be a catalyst for healthcare transformation. By technology, I mean the leaps many systems of care have made in their technological capabilities to deal with the realities of C-19. Dr. Salad, Rahul Dubey, and I talk about whether and how greater digital capability, which often means greater ability to care for populations vis-a-vis remote monitoring and telehealth, but whether, you know, the tail can wag the dog, so to speak. Because so much investment has been made in these technology capes that we're going to want to use them. And when we use them, we transform care delivery. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Yohani Salad, MD, and Rahul Dubey, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you so much, Stacey. Thanks, Stacey. Dr. Salad, let me first ask you, let's talk about interoperability now. What COVID specifically made evident is we are increasingly lacking ability to create learning healthcare system. It's very hard for us to quickly create experiments or share clinical information all across the country to start combating something like COVID. We are lacking some of the data standards. We're lacking some of the privacy laws. What COVID is doing is speeding up this uh, transformation. Just let's just say prior to COVID, there was this huge hullabaloo where there was certain, I'm going to call them vested interests, i.e. notably the HR system, Epic, that came out you know, strongly against letting patients have access to their data. There was a number of health systems that hopped on that bandwagon. You know, there was all of these forces that frankly benefit to a lack of interoperability that COVID has now shown a spotlight on. The fact that we don't have interoperability and we do have all this fragmented data, you know, like we can't calculate how many people are in the hospital at a national level because there's no national data set because there's no interoperability, even between health systems in certain cases in the same area, unless there's a really well-functioning HIE. So, 
how does this pandemic impact interoperability, which many see as a basis for doing good population health and a lot of other things? It's, it's kind of a foundational technology element. First of all, in a defense of ONC and current progress made is amazing, right? We're probably in the best shape we've ever been from interoperability perspective. Things are getting better, though maybe not as fast as a lot of us would like it to be. So I think the vector of the the overall movement is right. Yeah, and what I was referring to was the backlash against the ANC-TEFCA role around interoperability that a number of parties with, you know, strong self-interest to squander data, for example, had had come out strongly against with this big letter that got a ton of yes. a ton of press. So, you know, that might be now after COVID a kind of a bad look. What we see is we see a faster adoption of a fire as a data exchange standard. We see the faster adoption of AMOP for the research. And we see the new legislation coming, like, for example, ONC Cures Act final rule that actually enforce EMR vendors and the healthcare system and actually for the first time even ensure to start sharing the data in the standard that can be easily ingested by the app economy, right? And they even specifically talking about the app ecosystem because we clearly understand that if we'll have to rely on the innovation and data-driven innovation only from the specific player currently entrenched in our healthcare system or EMI vendor, it may either never happen or take too long. Bringing all of this spur of Silicon Valley innovation into the healthcare at least help to create this disruption potential that will help us to move forward faster. How does this maybe desperate need for innovation that can be created faster and more confidently by smaller, more agile tech vendors look from the health system perspective? From the healthcare system perspective, now when we're talking about the scalability and the implementation of the new tools, suddenly we realized that it's very hard to bring a new tool into the clinical practice in the healthcare system, right? We have a lot of the legacy interfaces that's been very reliable and work fine. I mean, HL7v2 is still here and nowhere going in the near future. But then the whole process to bring new vendor into the healthcare system is very long and cumbersome. And when you're talking about many AI-driven tools. When you're talking about clinical decision support system tools for your clinician, you all of a sudden talking about such a high influx of new system into your clinical settings that it's unmanageable. So it's not only the data exchange, it's your ability as a healthcare system to innovate. It's your ability to maintain this competitive edge to do something faster and safer that can be enabled by technology in a digital transformation. And I think this is where, in this triangle between uh, consumer demand, the demand of the healthcare system and the regulatory requirement, where the, all the technology innovation will happen in the next decade. Rahul, what do you want to add? Well, one, well first of all, we have uh, one of the top minds in interoperability and data flow and exchange on this podcast right now. So I, I'm not going to be able to add too much to what Yanni said because he's the best in the business. But I do want to say the ability for us to share information now, we have a 
for the first time ever and probably for the next hundred years, hopefully, that everyone will be engaging with the healthcare system within the next 12 to 18 months. Let's hope if it's not everyone, let's say it's 70%. We can at least gather one piece of information about their health status. I don't know if it's it's blood pressure, if it's uh, sentiment, but we get to engage with that. And I think if we can capture that engagement and that finite data set, that definitive data set, and share that across the board as a test between payer, provider, consumer, pharmacy, I think that that is the real opportunity here. We can use the existing pieces that Johanny and his colleagues on on the, the health system side have so diligently put together. So Dr. Sled, you mentioned another aspect of interoperability, which I, I certainly don't want to underplay, which is it's not only the sharing of data, but then it's also the ability of any given health system to add an app or another technology onto their, you know, stack, if you will. And and that's been really difficult. You know, there hasn't been any sort of standard, you know, we've had HL7, but everybody knows all the difficulties with that. Now FIRE is, is coming out as a standard. But it's really tough if you're trying to innovate, if you've got to go through, you know, like 18 months of integration and legal agreements in order to make anything happen. Do you see us at an inflection point, you know, maybe because of COVID or maybe just because of where we are in the time-space continuum are we on the road to a more frictionless or at least shorter <laughs> time frame to use technology? Yes, we certainly are. Again, it's a combination because now when we talk about telemedicine and remote patient monitoring, you out of a sudden capturing all of this data, right? That's before was only selectively prescribed to some of the patients. Now you also have uh, your tracing information. You have additional application that's coming specifically for the COVID symptoms monitoring and you have a higher utilization. So out of a sudden you have a way higher needs from the healthcare system that you ever had before. You cannot just dump it as traditionally we've been doing it on your clinical staff. You cannot dump it on clinicians to go review this data and then make your population health decision. You actually have to come up with a pretty robust system that give actionable insight to clinician that they can they operationally put into your clinical care. Why do you say that you have to right now? Like what has changed that, you know, we can't just be dumping data into some data lake and never looking at it again? Clinicians who never even considered practicing technology-enabled healthcare settings, right? Even six months ago, you're bringing some of the physicians who were reluctant to a certain degree use voice recognition, right? As your dictation or even refused EMR adoption 10 years ago. And now all of those physicians in some of the practices, not only practicing directly in the EMR and virtually, they're also reviewing the data that's being collected asynchronously by the system. So your need and your demand from your clinical staff out of a sudden becomes real. It's not just few innovators who are tackling with the data as a part of their value-based agreements or research projects. It's out of a sudden higher number of your clinicians or using it in day-to-day practice, which is a very different value. And what do you think about that, Rahul? I think with the, the adoption of technology, one of the things we said five years ago at the AHIP Innovation Lab was make docs happy. That is a very foreign concept for payers, for employers, for people that are not delivering care to think about as essential stakeholders. So the reason being is we wanted to keep independent docs independent. And I feel that that's the exact same approach that we want right now. We want to be able to enable the primary care physician 
to deliver care, to capture that key piece of information, that health status, whether it be a diagnostic, whether it be a PHQ-9 behavioral health screen. So making docs happy through a digital-first approach and working with them rather than dictating upon them, as we payers have done in the past, I think there's an approach to look for. There are some great use cases within integrated delivery networks, such as Capital District Physician Health Plan, Pacific Source in, in Oregon. These are amazing health plans that are, are focusing on the consumer, focusing on their providers, their physicians, enabling that care, and really kind of, I like to call them the heroes, and playing the, the hero in their market for their plan members and for their patients. So I would have to say that the tech is going to enable that. And that's a great point, Rahul. That should be our long-term target. But now when we urgently putting intervention in, the fundamental question is how we make our docs less unhappy, right? Like how we are not increase this burden of one yet another click on the physicians. That's we traditionally been doing because the burnout levels are at the highest level we ever seen that. And now... I don't want to talk about burnout. I appreciate it. And I do. And I sympathize with that. But I can't sell burnout to decision makers that are looking at a spreadsheet. I can sell value of care and outcomes and less, less cost. And if you can help me do that, you and I are going to be able to take these kind of forced measures and, and turn them for good. The, the interesting way to look at that is a burnout physician cannot provide high value care, Rahul. I know you may not be sell the burnout yet, but this is real. I, I think at this point, we actually are able to sell the risk of a burnout. Then all the system combined, the system that provide less incremental efforts from clinician and decrease the burnout probably should be the one that you implement in your healthcare settings. We're kind of spiraling around a point, which I think is, is, would be interesting to explore. Tech and having providers who are not burnout and able to you know, efficiently provide care vis-a-vis remote monitoring or telehealth or any of the very interesting technologies that are starting to emerge. What this all adds up to is an ability to provide population health, you know, kind of at its its highest level. Like that's what we're gunning for here. You know, the ability to keep a population of patients well using this technology. So I'm going to ask you this question, Rahul. Given that the number of value-based contracts are, let's just say, relatively sparse in comparison to fee-for-service contracts, What is a payer's interest in ensuring that there is adequate population health within their populations? Like, why do they all of a sudden care about that? Excellent question. And I would like to reverse that. I think that there are a lot more value-based contracts on paper that are out there than fee-for-service contracts. Value-based practices are not yet there. So we have a lot of contracts and a breakdown in terms of the procedure and the operation. I think what we need to be able to do is we have all changed over in our thinking at the highest level of these C-suites of the health plans and the health systems that value-based care is the way that we need to go. And it wasn't working. It was working for some. It was an experimental stage for others. And it was flat broke for the majority of the people because we did not have the tools, the technology, more importantly, the personnel and the executives and the transformational leaders that were coming up the ranks that were tasked with managing this. And I think right now we have all the pieces on the board to take this digital first approach to be able to enable the physicians to drive value-based care. 
We have spent billions on analytics, yet we haven't been able to, to thaw them out. They still remain frozen, as Johanny mentioned. But if we can actually share one piece of information and show that it works, and we've done this before between payer and provider in a certain market in, in upstate New York, where we were able to arm the physician with the, the information and the tools necessary without making it complex and do so collaboratively. And in doing so, they were able to jump, to create a joint health plan and list themselves on the exchange the following year because they managed the cost so well. So it is possible. I think we need to be able to show it. And I think right now, whether it is even antibody tests and sharing that across four or five different stakeholders, I would love to be able to test that. And I think that with the payer playing the hero to enable the provider, let's arm the essential stakeholders with delivering that care and impacting the lives of our plan members, patients, and customers. Payers to a certain extent, and this has been said long before before COVID, are, are at a bit of an existential moment. They've got to either prove their value as a middleman or start buying providers, both of which strategies are <laughs> being explored. They are both being explored, yes. <laughs> so, Dr. Salad, what do you have to add to that? And, and let me ask you a specific question. So Rahul's suggesting that the value-based contracts exist. It was just kind of a problem for providers to be able to deliver on that value-based contracts because of the vacuum of technology or maybe the will or just any number of, of other factors. From a provider standpoint, does that picture look the same? Value-based contracts do exist. The question is how widespread it is and how much additional upside risk or downside risk we have. We will need additional and significant push from the peer perspective and, and probably from the government to allow to use all of this newly created technology environment with telemedicine and remote patient monitoring to properly transition to the value-based care in the future. So what's the danger here? You know, like, what is the danger that our actions are going to inadvertently have negative consequences? You know, what we've been saying. So say we go full force into building up remote monitoring, chronic care management, adding tech, we're interoperable, you know, you've got payers who are acting like heroes. You know, is there any potential downside that we're going to have to ensure that we don't fall into? Fraud, waste and abuse. And I'm not saying this in terms of criminal activity. I'm talking about minor upcoding, uh, uh, additional visits, unnecessary, ineffective care. That's inappropriate care, really. That's what I'm, I'm talking about, not just someone banging up uh, fraudulent claims. There might be an increase in overconsumption of care. And there's a challenge there, even if with digital avenues, that might be a lower cost. But there has been a cost shifting taking place in healthcare for the last 12, 15 years. And that cost shifting is coming upon us, you and I and, and consumers, and even talking to Medicaid. And so for that, the unnecessary care, the unnecessary virtual visit, or come see me, or let's do a virtual visit twice a week, or come see me, let me write you another script if that doesn't work. I think there might be an increase in utilization of care. And that cost sharing is going to be coming out of a pocket of a population that is annual income is decreasing rapidly if it does exist at all. So it's not like overutilization is a is a new thing, but there is a potential as we lower barriers, you know, if you lower barriers to access, i.e., you know, patients doesn't even need to leave their home, so they don't have to take a half day of work off of work. The idea is that, you know, maybe they're going to have four telehealth visits instead of one in-person visit. And if we're still paying FFS. I'm not saying, of course, Stacey, I'm not saying that someone's going to sit there and call three times a day. 
But if it's there and it's $40 versus $180, am I going to use it three times in a month versus going to the doctor once? And do I even need to? If the provider has a capitated contract, then, you know, the patient can call as much as they as they want. And they should. We actually engage that with primary care on a capitated unlimited primary care is a great strategy for getting engagement, getting definitive uh, health status data sets on patients and, and plan members to benefit their life and impact their life. But also it lowers costs by 21%. You mean having a primary care? Engaging with a patient's engaging with a primary care physician two to three times a year lowers costs by 21%. Many studies from Kaiser Family Foundation on that. So we encourage that engagement. What we don't encourage is unnecessary, inappropriate, ineffective engagement. Yeah. And there has been, a, let's just say, a lack of value placed on cognitive services. If we're going to characterize telehealth as a as a cognitive service and, and a lot of emphasis put on procedures and testing and poking and prodding, as, as some call it, which has been highly compensated while having a, a visit with a primary care physician or, or somebody who's trying to think through what a patient's issues are has been, let's just say, wildly undercompensated. And I think that might be coming into focus more as well. Dr. Salad, do you have anything from a provider standpoint that you're seeing day to day that you'd want to add to this? Sure. But before I, I switch to the provider side, I, I would like to address some of the things that uh, Rahul mentioned. First Wait. of all, I think it's uh, it's real. But then at the same time, we we do see a lot of new business model that's coming from uh, venture-backed healthcare, technology-first healthcare systems. That's pretty much selling you unlimited access to primary care physicians for very low fees, right? And they able to grow and make it sustainable. And most importantly, often they do build a relationship, right? Because your overutilization of a lot of the services, and I mean overutilization because of a need or perceived need, not the frank uh, abuse, is most of the time because you do not have a great relationship with your provider. This is why a lot of concierge doctors do not see such a high utilization because physicians establish good relationship with the patients. The patient know physician is there when they need help and physician can appropriately follow up if they see something, right? So patients do not have to call and ask about every small thing they discover because they're afraid physician may forget to mention it or bring it back to them. So I think to a certain degree, it's a combination of potential risks because we're enabling and opening digital channels. But then if we're not doing it correctly by establishing proper strategy to communicate and maintain long-term relationship, we will have both overuse or maybe even lower satisfaction for both providers and clinicians. And does this pose risk for health systems? Is there any risk and is it real? It's real. And it's real only because when you look in our current landscape, you see how much money being invested in technology over just the COVID timeline, right? Over the last three to four months. And the main risk is a lot of this is necessary investment because you did not have enough technology infrastructure to provide the care you want. But some of the things may not be well planned. Some of the things may not have a solid operational support for you to get a full value out. So the biggest concern here is that we potentially may be burned by that. If 
all of this investment will not be properly utilized and will not be able to push it to the next big milestone, new normal. People may look at that as a failed technology transformation attempt and say, no, we actually shouldn't do any of that. Technology is an absolutely wrong way to go. Let's not try it again. And are you seeing shadows of that happening? Not yet, but I see the mentality of some of the leaders across the United States where they are spending resources on new and great technologies. But what's important is not single piece of technology, but how well this particular technology fit in your technology puzzle, right, around your system how well you operationally can utilize this tool and what additional value you will be providing to your patient and to your clinician. And are you currently in the appropriate stage of uh, your digital journey, right? That you can even use this tool. Like for example, you cannot jump to AI if you do not have comprehensive clinical data warehousing, right? Which is pretty much no brainer but we do have examples will system doing leaps like that. Or you cannot do consumer-facing application digital transformation if you have zero desire to transition to online scheduling, digitally first services, or have no telemedicine. Because everything you do for the patient should have a clear value to them, right? Nobody will be downloading your app because it's your app. Like they may try to get it, but if there is nothing useful, nobody will be using this. There's a great quote from Sun Tzu in The Art of War. Strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. I think that pretty much sums up what you just said. (laughs) Exactly. Rahul, what are you looking to add? I think there's a lot of noise and I'm hoping it's not defeat. So where I see this happening is we are going, I know we're going to be getting into, all right, well, who's going to pay for it and how this is going to work. But I think if you can look at, are we able to capture one data set of the health status of an individual that we did not have before? How are we able to enable the PCP? and then drive health literacy and workflow tools. If we can look at those three things and map it back to those three things always as we're moving forward in this this post-COVID world, I think we're going to be much better off than we were going into it. But it's going to take action and it's going to take multi-stakeholders to to get it done. I think the the most important question, right, we we have to ask to all of the technologists in the Literacy Gross Healthcare System is what type of technology can provide this missing link for your particular healthcare system. What further investment in technology opened the door for the meaningful automation and how they can leverage all of this transition to further advance the way they think and the way they deliver care? Absolutely. And Stacey, I just wanted to add, every one of the the payers that I'm talking to, we're in in the conversations with providers at the table of, okay, finally, how do we enable you to get these things done? Or what is it? And we've actually even turned it. What is it that you need to get done? What do you need? What are the tools that we need to be able to provide? And that is something that is is happening now. It was happening pre-COVID, but now it's been accelerated. What I'm understanding you saying, Rahul, is payers are at the table with providers, not necessarily having contract negotiations, but offering to create or give data or, you know, do things on behalf of providers in order to help their 
More so, Stacey, it's much more than that. It's, uh, you know, it's happening with Capital District and, and uh, Physician Health Plan and working with Valera Health and Behavioral Health. They're actually making these tools available to the community, to doctors that are out of network to, to extend these existing assets, these idle assets, right, to, to other stakeholders and saying, use this. And they're, they're making that open. So they're, sh they're sharing tools. They're asking opinions and feedbacks, what data should be captured, you know, where would you like it embedded in? How are we going to share that information? Those conversations are happening. It makes me very proud to see that. We kind of have been talking about reimbursement at the same time that we've been talking about technology. But I just want to give you both the opportunity to, do you, do you have anything that you want to add? I think reimbursement is the, the new HIPAA. And I don't mean this as it's not, an, as it's important. It's definitely the barrier. So when we were sharing information, it was HIPAA, HIPAA, HIPAA. And now it's, okay, reimbursements. I think it is critical, especially with the, the market, the economy, and the hospitals decreasing revenue. But I think we need to understand is what's value. So how do we align, Johanny said it earlier in this great discussion, about aligning incentives. I think it meant in terms of what do we consider valuable, whether it's evidence-based care, whether it's team care, who's on the team, how many hours are we going to dedicate to that patient as a collaborative team effort? Those need to be aligned. And I think that that's where we're going to generate value. The value point, Rahul, that, that you raise is real. But at the same time, far too often, healthcare system focusing on how I'm going to pay for my newly introduced digital service. And I think to a certain degree, we need more evidence in data around the delivering of this technology-enabled services to generate uh, the better picture about the value. We, we already have some literature, right? But it's never been as widespreadly implemented as now. So creating this constant system of innovation that's aligned between government, payers, as well as a healthcare system and the patients is paramount to all of that. Because if any of us will try to innovate in the reimbursement models in silo, it's will never gonna happen because every player will think that for some reason, another one trying to get the best out of them and we will not have enough trust into the equation. It should be transparent. And this is where enabling it by technology is crucial. That's all of the data is flowing into easy to share and review and audit format. But on the same time, we should plan to expose all of this initial piloting things to the real care model in the near future, because without acceptance from the healthcare system that this is the way we're going, the incentive for them to participate and to move will be significantly less and all of our technology commitments and the good intent may potentially be lost. I do think that there has to be some reimbursement tied to the overall care and the value and administrating that care. I think that right now we've put incentives out there. There have been plenty of chronic care management codes, CCM codes that are there that are offering health systems you know, higher reimbursements for managing patients' care to the tune of $96 to $192 per patient per month. And those codes aren't being written. Because the digital technology isn't there. Doctors think they're going to have to pick up the phone, make phone calls. But there's platforms that exist that have not been utilized, that we're saying to doctors, utilize. It's funny. The language has changed. Payers would always say underutilize. And now we're saying use these tools. But we were giving them the wrong tools. We weren't designing them with the doc in mind or the patient in mind. We were designing them for the institution in mind. And so now there's an opportunity, and I know you're always 
takes this invite, but tell us what you need. Let's design something. And I'm not saying co-create, but tell me what it is that you, you need. And we'll go find payers and some other essential stakeholders to take the burden of that financial risk at the beginning, knowing that it's going to pay out the, the, at the back end. But it takes a certain type of organization, a certain type of payer. I know Emblem Health does it in New York, Capital District, I mentioned many times, that is willing to look into their population, their employer base, what important things or pieces that their employer needs. And I, and I think that those pieces, a lot of them remain the same in a post-COVID world. So if we're going to sum up our advice, you know, this whole conversation has been chock full of advice for executives at payer organizations, provider organizations, probably tech organizations, you name it across the healthcare industry gamut. What are the action items? Like coming out of this conversation, if you were going to give an executive at a healthcare stakeholder, you know, one or two sort of bits of things you should be doing now, how would you prioritize what they should be putting on their to-do list like today? I would say uh, always focus on patience. Don't be afraid of technology, but be afraid of hype and forceful digital transformation without a strong operational plan. Telemedicine which includes video visits and remote patient monitorings are here to stay. So ask yourself a question, how does it change the way you approach care at your institution? How does it change your workforce? How does it change your patient access? Are you consumers facing and clinician facing tool mature enough to support this new workflow? And how does the new workflow will affect your clinicians? Because this one more click problem will include burnout. It will decrease the number of patients, uh, of physicians who are willing to participate and support you during the digital transformation. And how you can, instead of putting the burden on your clinical staff, use this new technologies and the workflow to make it better to provide a higher value care. Can you share your outcome and clinical data tomorrow? Just ask yourself this question. And if you can't, you cannot share it because of a technology, because it's hard for you to know it, or because there is something else. And, and there is something else that's currently barrier, something else that you think may make you less competitive in the transparent environment or make you less efficient. Look at that, focus on that, because it's always better to lead the wave of innovation Lastly, embrace digital transformation as a force. COVID helped to address a lot of irrational fears, but some fears are real. We truly can create some of the digital divide and we should plan to provide alternative channels for care access during this digital transformation for the most vulnerable populations in our group. It's not an ad hoc idea. It's not something we can address post. We have to actively plan for that. But most importantly, do not lose momentum because of the transitional and transparent challenges. Push for continuous adoption, even if the reimbursement, the regulation may lag behind, because we need this experience and data to rethink our healthcare. We need to redesign our care journey and ultimately create a more affordable 
and uh, high quality healthcare system that's enabled by technology. And Rahul? Yeah, I think looking at, at the C-level executives when we're talking is care management and pop health are critical, but care management is not consumerism. Consumerism doesn't fall under pop health. Consumerism is the umbrella, and we need to really focus in on that. Never been able to crack the code for B to B to C in healthcare. Start focusing on net promoter score, but we don't have dispute resolution ratios. We don't know how many problems our customer service lines are handling and how many have been put to bed, but we focus on that promoter score. So it's these things that say a little bit about consumerism, but they don't get to the core of consumerism because it's not the overarching theme, pop health or care management, disease management. These are things that are ingrained in us, utilization, enterprise medical management. These are things that are engraved in our culture and, and, and our strategy and, and the tools that we have used to deliver care. And now we have to take this approach where consumerism is an overarching theme. And pop health falls under that, care management, disease management, provider networks all fall under consumerism. If we can change that lens, I think we are going to be uh, on the precipice of amazing opportunity and, and very lucrative companies. Dr. Yoheni Salad and Rahul Dubey, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Truly, Stacey, I just want to add that Dr. Salad has just been a distinguished colleague of mine for years. And I just appreciate the cross-aisle payer-provider collaboration that he and I have been able to do across the last six years. Rahani, thank you very much. And, and uh, I will look forward to many more with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rahul. And from my side, I have to say that pretty much all of my knowledge of uh, insurance uh, reimbursement perception and landscape came from Rahul. So I'm extremely grateful for his friendship and support. And thank you, Stacey, for having us. Thank you, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.